One Hope Church. All right, good morning, everyone. Glad to see you here this morning. Welcome. We are going to continue our study this morning in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 19. We're making a lot of uh, quick progress through 2 Samuel. Um, a lot here for us to look at. Um, I do want to just give just a, a brief reminder uh, to set the scene if you're visiting with us today or um, if you ha- had to be out a, a Sunday or two. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at the life of King David um, is, is primary in this, in this book. And we saw um, earlier his, his great fall into temptation um, and sin, and then he tried to cover up his sin and made, his, made things you know, much worse. And that had grave consequences, and now he has been um, reaping what he has sowed. Um, and so there's been a rebellion in the kingdom from his own um, son Absalom um, and David and others had to flee people loyal to him most of them had to flee uh, from Jerusalem and then you know we see David with this conflict that he knows he needs to be king he knows he needs to lead the people and at the same time he doesn't want to see anything bad happen to his son so he gives um, the commanders this charge to be kind to Absalom if they meet him in battle. And Absalom, we know, um, was a handsome gentleman um, with amazing hair and gets his hair caught um, in an oak tree and he's hanging there as his donkey has continued on and he is suspended between heaven and earth. And Joab hears news of that and Joab you know, we saw is um, someone, we'll, we'll study more about him today, but he is, he is someone who, who is very opinionated about what is right and wrong um, in his own eyes and what is best for the, his nation and for the people in his own eyes. Um, and he's going to do just that. So he, um, he thrusts, you know, a few spears through Absalom hanging um, in the tree there to end his life. Um, and then David is, is mourning uh, the loss of his, of his son as one who has been defeated in battle. Um, he, David is mourning as one who's been defeated as opposed to one who's been victorious. And we saw at the end this at the end um, last week as we looked at the first um, eight verses of, of chapter 19 where you know, David is still in, in, you know, weeping about his son, and Joab um, really gives him a harsh rebuke and says, you know, you would rather those who honor you to die and those who dishonor you to live. You know, you'd rather for your, your friends to die and your enemies to live. Um, you know, you need to go out and be king and, you know, give these people um, some encouragement for what they've, what they've been through uh, for, on your behalf. And so, um, you know, but, but what we're going to see this morning is, is David is still a little bit, you know, salty uh, with Joab about having killed his son. So, uh, you know, we'll get into that this morning as well. But let's go ahead again to the Lord in prayer, um, and then we'll begin in verse 9 of chapter 19. 
So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. Um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's truth. It has lessons for us, even passages that are full of sin and violence and terrible things, yet there are still things there for us to learn and um, to apply to our lives that our lives might be lived to give you glory, that we would honor you and not dishonor you. And so we ask for your help in all of that. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So in verse 9 it says, Now all the people were in dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? So King David sent to Zadok and Abathar the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring back to his house, since the king back to his house, since the words of all Israel have come to the king to his very house? You are my brethren, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasar, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man. So they that they sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants. So again, now, this is where we see that David is still angry with Joab. He's a, you know, accomplishing kind of two things at once. Joab, um, we, we need to remember that Joab is, is David's nephew. Okay, he's his, um, his older sister's you know, son, and David was, you know, was um, very young in his family. He's, uh, so there's, you know, might not be all that much of an age difference between David and Joab, even though David is the uncle and Joab is the nephew. Amasa is actually another nephew um, of, of David and perhaps... Um, a little bit younger um, than than Joab, so that re- that family relationship also gave you know Joab some more leeway because he's not just you know the commander Joab when he was doing these things was not just commander of the army he was also a you know blood relative of. Of David, and so he has some more leeway in what he does and in what he says. Um, so we have to remember that. But you see, David is angry with him. He, he's, no, he's not going to have him killed or banished or something like that, but he wants to have him replaced. So he looks for another relative, and he's like, he can, through this change, use a, a massive you know, standing in the tribe of Judah to unite that whole tribe, you know, all of his, you know, people behind him and help him reestablish his, his place as king. Um, and so it's, it's personal and it's strategic in what David is trying to accomplish, um, accomplish here. Now, what's crazy about this is we have to remember Amasa was the commander of Absalom's army. Okay? He was part of the rebellion going after Absalom. And so this is a way, again, 
for, for David, it seems strange to us, but this is a way for David to make peace and to say, okay, the rest of you are not going to be punished for what you've done and taking part of this rebellion. We're going to bring everybody back and unite everyone, okay? So that's what he's, that's what he's doing there. Um, you know, it's a, it's a unification. Um, but it's a, you know, I think we would have to look at it objectively and say that's also, it seems like a ga- pretty big gamble. You know, you're going to trust somebody who had been part of a rebellion to now be, you know, the commander of, of your army. And also he's part of an army that was soundly defeated by the man you're replacing. You know, he was defeated by Joab. Like his army lost to Joab's army. Like there's no getting around that. And you're going to yet put him in charge in Joab's place. So, you know, it's a political attempt and it, and it seems to have some some risks associated with it. But it works in that it brings the, the men of Judah you know, back into full allegiance to David. Okay, So let's go to verse 15. It says, Then the king returned and came to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan. And Shimea the son of Gera, a Benjaminite, who was from Bahurim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons and his twenty servants went with him, and they went over the Jordan before the king. Then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. Now Shimea the son of, son of Gera fell down before the king when he crossed the Jordan. Then he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity to me, or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my lord the king. Let's stop there for a moment to remember Shimea, that's when, when David was leaving Jerusalem, you know, they had to flee Jerusalem, and there is Shimea, you know, kind of on the hill, he's on the hill above, throwing rocks at the king and his men and cursing them. You know, and one of his servants says, hey, how about I go up there and just take his head off, basically. Like, how about I go up there and just kill him? You know, you're just going to let him do that? And David just lets it go. He's like, you know, maybe, it's kind of like maybe God told him to, to, to curse us today. And if we respond well to that, perhaps he'll come back, you know, as a blessing for us. So just let him be. And continues on. Now, this guy's like, he realizes, okay, stink. I thought Absalom was going to kind of win this whole thing. And now here I am. Kind of everybody knows what I've done. Like there's no, and there, there's not, there's not really any running or hiding from this situation, right? So instead of running and hiding, he goes and begs for mercy. He goes and begs for mercy, and he says, "I know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am." And there's a lesson here in that. One is just like admitting wrong. Um, and he does more than just admit that he had backed the wrong side. I mean, he admits that like fundamentally his, his cursing of David was, was wrong. Um, that he had sinned. And I, I think that's just a great lesson 
um, you know, when we do wrong, to, to be humble and to ask for forgiveness. But there's also a lesson here. There's a spiritual lesson. You know, nobody comes to know God without admitting their sin. Admitting that they're sinful, that they're a sinner, and asking for forgiveness. Like, and, and the thing about it, like, Shimeon knew there was, like, no getting out of this situation, and there was no place that he could run. There was no place that he could go, that he was, he was guilty, and he, he knew he, you know, he was, uh, you know, in the crosshairs of judgment, we would say. But for people today, like, there's nowhere you can run from God. There's nowhere to hide. We are guilty. Every last person, the scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person has sinned against God, has offended the holy God, and is guilty before God, and there's no place to hide. So, there are some options. One, the illusion of hiding. Just run, just, just run and pretend like that's going to do some good. Two is to fight. That's another option. To fight is to say in defiance, I'm okay just as I am. I'm not wrong. And just to fight. A lot of people will do that. Or I'm good enough. Because... Yeah, I did these things that were wrong, but I also did these other things that were good. Self-justification. Was Shimia, you know, going to go and just say, hey, you know, I know what I did was, was wrong, but, you know, I've got some documentation from a few years ago when I did some things that were good. And try to make a case for himself that his good should outweigh his bad. But that doesn't absolve guilt. It doesn't even absolve guilt in a, in a human sense. You know, when somebody commits murder, we don't say, well, you know what? You know, five years ago, they held this, you know, elderly lady carry her groceries into her house. So therefore, they're absolved of the murder they committed. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that, even in a human realm, much less before a holy God. And so... That fighting isn't really an, a good option. It's an option, but it's not a good one. You can run, you can fight, or you can be humble and beg for mercy. And there's a risk here because, you know, Shimea doesn't know what God's reaction, I mean, what David's reaction is going to be to his plea for mercy. David could, you know, in his mind, you know, what's David going to do? You know, he knows he's been merciful to people in the past. He does have some, if he, you know, he knows there's been stories that have been told. He knows some of the, you know, the historical record that David has been merciful to people in the past. He also knows that, you know, David's had people killed in the past, too. So what's it going to be for me? You know, he, it's, it's a risk. They're all a risk, but this one seems like the only risk that actually has a chance of something good happening for him. But this is also where it's different with God. Because the scripture is very clear that everyone who humbles themselves before God will receive mercy. 
that's like a guarantee. Like that's the one <laughs> that is guaranteed that, you know, we have, you know, it's not just that a person's guilty and they're asking God for forgiveness and they, ho- they have a hope so that things are going to work out in their favor. No, we know in the historical record what God has done in that he actually sent payment for those sins. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying on the cross for those sins. Like that he desires to give mercy and provided payment so that he can righteously give that mercy. So there's no question of what God will do for the person who says, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner, I believe in you, Jesus. There's not, a, there's not a doubt what God will do for that person. There's no risk of it turning out poorly for the individual who is humble. See, that's, that's the amazing thing about what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the religions of this world are like Shimea going before King David with a, I hope so. Because they don't have guarantees. There's no guarantee in Islam. There's no guarantee in Buddhism. There's no guarantee in Hinduism. There's certainly no guarantee in humanism. There are no guarantees in any of those things. But the blood of Jesus Christ gives us guarantee. So, you know, I know in, in, in our world of, of pluralism and where it's offensive to say that one thing is better than another or something is right and something is wrong, we should not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ that stands alone and says, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father but by him. We should not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ that guarantees people forgiveness and to be made part of the family of God versus false religions that, are, that don't have the confidence in their own beliefs to even back it up with a guarantee. It's like they know it's false because they can't with certainty say that it's true. That if you do things according to what their religion says, it will work out well for you in the end. They can't, they're unwilling to put a guarantee on that. They're unwilling to do it. Because I think intrinsically they know that they can't. But we can. And why can we have that confidence? Because. Jesus Christ went to that cross and he died. So we remember that as we take the bread and the cup. And he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. That's our guarantee. We have something far better than Shimei had when he went to King David and he said, I know that I have sinned. 
Now verse 21. But Abishai the son of Zariah answered and said, Shall not Shimea be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And we have some, man, we have people who claim to follow Jesus that are like that. You know, somebody <laughs> repents and they're like, man, why should that person get forgiveness? Like, they were terrible. You know, we, we, <laughs> let's not be that like that. Listen to this. And David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shimea, You shall not die. And the king swore to him. Abishai, again, that's another nephew of David. That's Joab's brother. The sons of um, David's older sister do not mind shedding blood. And they're very opinionated about when that should happen and how that should happen. They want to be, um, you know, judge, jury, and executioner. They want, they, want a, they want all the roles in that. Now let's go to verse 24. Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, who's the, actually, he's the, you know, that's a, he is, he's the, he's the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan, came down to meet the king, and he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go to the king, because your servant is lame, and he has slandered your servant to the, my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your eyes. For all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who eat at your table. Therefore, what right have I to steal the crowd any more to the king? And the king said to him, Why do you speak any more of your matters? And said, I have said, You and Ziba divide the land. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather, let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. Remember um, 2 Samuel chapter 9 um, you know God um, I think, you know, puts it on David's heart to restore Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was you know, his best friend's um, son. Um, he had been taken by his uh, maidservant you know, to run when Saul had, uh, had been killed. And she trips and falls, and Mephibosheth is made lame. He cannot walk the rest of his, of his life. Um, he's dependent on others uh, for many things. Uh, but David brings him back. It's a beautiful story in, in 2 Samuel 9. But, he, but here, um, Ziba, who's been put in, in charge of, um, of helping Mephibosheth, we see we, you know, he's, he's made it seem like Mephibosheth was part of the rebellion um, with Absalom. And so we're left here with this conundrum of who's right and who's wrong. You know, which way does this, this go? Um, at this point, I think, unfortunately, we see it, I think, in verse 29, where he just says, you know, you and Ziba divided. I think he's, 
he's like tired and isn't willing to do that work to find out what the real situation and justice is, you know, what justice would be in this situation. So he's kind of like, it's a he said, he said, and I'm just going to go with y'all just split it down the middle and for, you know, leave me alone. Which is kind of sad, I think, in the, in the situation. I think based on verse 30, that Mephibosheth is the one who is right. Because he would rather have nothing and David be back as king than to have everything and David not be king. I think he makes that you know, clear. Um, and that response sounds familiar. I have to wonder if Solomon you know, heard that you know, response and took it to heart. And then in, um, in the book of Kings, when he is deciding between two women, two women, you know, they both have babies and, and one baby dies and they're both saying, you know, mine's the one that's alive and, and hers is the one, you know, that's dead. And he has to figure out, you know, how to determine who's telling the truth here. Um, and so he says, bring me a sword and I'll divide you know, the baby in half, and y'all can each take a half. And the first woman says, no, just don't harm the child, let her have it. And the other one says, you can, you can do, you know, what you wanted with, you know, split down the middle. Meaning that the one woman was a true mother, and the other woman was just terribly bitter. Okay? Uh, and bitterness is a terrible thing. We'll say that's a whole other story. But bitterness will destroy people and, and people around them. Um, but I think... You know, perhaps Solomon heard this response of Mephibosheth and, you know, he was one who sought wisdom and gained wisdom and then, um, you know, used this lesson in the, in the future. Um, so that's a, that's a possibility there. So then verse 31, it says, And Barzillia the Gileadite came down from Rogalum and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan now, Brasilia was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahenium, for he was a very rich man. And the king said to Brasilia, Come across with me, and I will provide for you while you are with me in Jerusalem. But Brasilia said to the king, How long have I to live, that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am today 80 years old. Can I discern between the good and the bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a further burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. And why should the king repay me for such a reward? With such a reward. Please let your servant turn back again that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant Chimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king and do for him what seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now whatever you request of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over to the Jordan, and when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Brasilia and blessed him, and he returned to his own place. And so here we see uh, you know, one of those who had provided um, for David and his men when they fled, um, his people when they fled Jerusalem, and now David wants to pay him back. I think I know some, um, you know, I think we say Brasilia was, was not just 80, he was an old 80 in terms of how he describes himself. I know some 80-year-old people who wouldn't um, describe themselves, 
you know, that way. I know some people well over 80 who are traveling the world preaching the gospel. Um, so, you know, it, it's kind of how you view yourself and your particular health circumstances and, and other things that can determine what and, you know, how long you can go and how long you can keep going at a certain, um, you know, level. I don't know, maybe Bra um, Brasilia hadn't taken too great a care of his, of his uh, physical health. Um, you know, it is what it is <laughs> there. But it is a pretty neat um, scene where, you know, he wants, um, he's thankful, but he doesn't expect anything great, even though he has done um, a great service. And I think that that's, you know, it, said that it says there that he was rich and, you know, he used that well. There's just a few lessons there. One is, you know, you can be wealthy and use that really well for the Lord, or you cannot. Um, historically, by most standards, you know, we're, we've, we're doing all right. So don't view, you know, remember that. Um, and strive, you know, we should all strive to be as generous as we possibly can be. Um, and we shouldn't think anything great of that. Uh, Barzilia, I think, just takes that as, you know, this is normal. This is what you do. You know, you do the right thing when you're able to do the right thing. You know, he doesn't look at it at himself as a hero. But he's just done well with what he's been given. That's it. You know, for him, it's simple. Um, and I think that we need to, to look at his attitude um, and to see it for the good example that it is. That he's not looking for some great reward, even though the king wants to give him honor and reward. Um, how much more should we be towards Jesus. Jesus says he'll give us rewards, but how much more should we just want, you know, to honor our king? Brasilia wanted to honor King David. How much more should we want to honor King Jesus? Now, verse 40, now the king went up to Gilgal and Shimon went on with him and all the people of Judah escorted the king and also half the people of Israel. Just then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brother, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all the David's men with him across the Jordan? So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is a close, close relatives of ours. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense, or has he ever given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, we have ten shares in the king, therefore we also have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Were, not, were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So here, you know, you have the seeds planted for future division. There's just a note there. Um, it's easy just to read that and kind of move on, but when you think about the whole history of Israel and Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom, like there are seeds planted here in terms of an us versus them, you know, mentality and not being fully united that that are planted 
um, in these events, and they are, you know, rooted in, um, you know, tribalism, um, and, you know, that's still a place, that's still true in, in many places today, you know, we have things that are places, some places are, are nations, but when you look more deeply, you realize within that nation, it's, it's you know, things are, are more by, you know, family groups than they are by anything else in terms of, you know, who runs the, the nation and what its priorities are and who in the nation succeeds and who in the nation struggles. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of that that still, you know, goes on. But again, it's kind of losing, you know, their way because they should have been able to see the big picture in terms of being, you know, part of the promised seed of, um, of Abraham, um, descendants of Abraham. They should have seen themselves as being, you know, though 12 tribes united as, as one, um, having all been slaves together in Egypt and all brought out of that, you know, together. Um, and there weren't some left behind or certain ones made higher than others. So um, they lose sight because they lose, um, I mean, they, they, lose, they lose priority because they lose sight. They lose perspective on what's most um, important. It's easy for that to happen in families. It's easy for that to happen in churches and communities, all sorts of places, because the enemy, the greatest tactic of the enemy is division. You know, I think that's just, from the very beginning, that's the tactic that the enemy seeks to use, is to seek to strive to create division. And when we given that easily you know I, th- I, I think that we need to have uh, you know very a very clear standard we need to have a very clear standard of what we believe in why and, and that's really the only thing I'm willing to divide over does that make sense like the gospel of Jesus Christ is you know the truth of, of God is is what, what we have to hold on to tightly. And sometimes that means, you know, if somebody comes in and they're like, I believe Jesus is just one of many ways to know God. Well, you know, I can love you, but we can't fellowship. Sorry. But we have to have, you know, the truth. But unfortunately, so many times, people divide over things that are, you know, unimportant. Um, you know, and, and many times, even in, in families, it's not like there's like these huge thing that happen. It's just like a series of little rifts that create division. So we have to be really careful that we do not give place for that, that we don't divide unnecessarily, and that we don't give place for division. Jealousy, bitterness, pride, these are all things that the enemy uses, you know, towards that end. And we need to be careful not to fall into any of that. Um, let's move quickly here because this is connected into this. All This is kind of all together, and it's important, I think, that we keep this passage together, this section of Scripture together. In chapter 20, the rebellion of Sheba. And there happened to be a, there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. 
every man to his tent, so Israel. So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. Now David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and put them in seclusion, and supported them, but not, did not go into them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. Um, just a quick note there, remember that you know, Absalom had followed the terrible advice given to him by Ahithophel, and you know, this was also like, just part of the judgment that David received, that what he had done in private would be done to him publicly. And, you know, Absalom went and slept with his, his wives. And David, um, you know, he, if he keeps the same relationship with them, it's in some ways that he would be sinning worse than, it's, than he's already sinned. So he supports them. He's, he's not cruel um, in this matter, but he doesn't have the same relationship. Um, again, we go back to back to Genesis, you know, the first three chapters of Genesis. For this reason, the man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife. And you just avoid a lot of troubles, you know. And it's just, um, I'll tell you all a funny one real quick. My, my, my daughter Hannah said she wants to have, um, I think it's 10 dogs, 11 cats, and 9 kids. And you're like, well, that's going to, you know we were having a conversation about that and she's like you know my husband's going to work and I'm just going to take care of all them and then we're like well that's going to be really nice really expensive and she goes yeah I might need two husbands I might need two husbands for that you know so yeah, two husbands to go and work to support all of that um, so we're, we're we, we got a good laugh at that and then it's like okay Genesis chapter 1 <laughs> Genesis chapter 2 and 3 like here we go um but you know, normally, historically, that's not how it's worked, right? It's normally it's not normal uh, situation where you have you know one woman with multiple husbands. Usually, it's the husband with multiple you know wives. And I would just say, you know, it sounds so odd to us, right, to say that a, a woman's going to have more than one husband. It should sound equally odd, I believe, that a husband should, would have more than one wife, right? So, you know, those both are, are abnormal because of what God has set it up to be from the beginning. Um, and it all has consequences. That's, again, just a lesson. You know, our world wants to, to do what it wants to do without consequence. But consequences are unavoidable. Consequences are unavoidable when we aren't doing things God's way. We already suffer consequences just from the general sin of humanity, you know, committed back in the garden. And we just add on to those when we continue in rebellion, when people go against God's, God's ways. And we need to be very careful that we don't take part. You know, we see these rebellions here. We see Absalom's rebellion and we're like, man, that's terrible. And we see Sheba's rebellion. And we go, that's terrible. Well, just the natural question for us is, are we taking part of any rebellions against Jesus, against the kingdom of God? Are, are we saying that some people's rebellions are okay? 
we give a green light to that sin. We give a green light to sin in our own hearts. We're saying our own rebellion against God is justifiable because of our culture or because of X, Y, and Z. Like, it's, it's easy to look at the rebellion of others and be like, that's awful. But are we examining and seeing, do I have rebellion in my own heart? Okay. Verse 4, and the king said to Amasa, so Amasa has now been made the commander in Joab's place. Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. So Joab's men, with the Cherethites, the Peleothites, and all the mighty men, went out after him, and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So what have we figured out right there that's happened? Amasa was given an order, go, you've got you know, three days or less to be back here with an army. Amasa shows that he is not an effectual commander. He's not able to do that, and David immediately has to revert back and go, okay, that didn't work. So he says to Abishai, um, you know, and through him, Joab, because they're brothers, y'all go take care of this now. So Amasa has been, been commander for a very short period <laughs> of time, um, you know, and it's going to get worse. So, uh, verse 8, when they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. So he said, you know, coming from the, from the other direction. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword and fastened in his sheath at its hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. Then Joab said to Amasa, are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. And he struck him with it in the stomach. And his entrails poured out on the ground. And he did not strike him again. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai his brother pursued Sheba the son of Bichri. Meanwhile one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. But Amasa wallowed in his own blood in the middle of the highway, and when the men saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him. When he, he saw that everyone who came upon him had halted. When he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Um, so we'll stop there for a moment. I mean, that's a pretty... Some of these scenes in this chapter are like scenes from a movie, you know, sort of, you know, a deal. Again, you know, we, we see Joab, he's, he's a, a mixed bag, okay? Like there's sometimes he does things that are really good and there's sometimes he does things that are really terrible because he's a, he's a carnal, like he's a fleshly person. Okay, he's not a spiritual person. You know, sometimes he deals in spiritual things, but more from like a religious sense. Like he's still, in a religious sense, you know, a follower 
of the, the way, you know, the, the things surrounding Moses in terms of the ceremonies and what you were supposed to be about as a good Israelite. But in the heart of it, he's not like Bersilia, you know, or Jonathan, or even David. He is, you know, he is different in that way. He has a, a, a lot of flesh in him. And he, what he cares about is his nation. And in that sense, for him, like the means always justify the end. He's like, I'm a better commander. You haven't, you know, you're not able to do this. So even though you're my cousin, I got to grab you by the beard and stick a sword in your gut. You know, that's how he thinks. That's his mentality. Um, And so, there you have it. And then the people again follow after Joab. Um, And he's back, you know, you see in that relationship with Joab and Abishai, Joab is the one who who takes the the lead. He's the um, more authoritative you know, of the, of the brothers. And so, verse 14, he went throughout all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth Mecca and all the Barites who were gathered together and also went after Sheba. And they came and besieged him and, and Abel, Abel of Beth Mecca and they cast up a siege mound against the city and it stood by the rampart and all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman cried out from the city, Here, here, please say to Joab, Come nearby that I may speak with you. When he had come near to her, the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, Hear the words of your maidservant. He answered, I am listening. So she spoke, saying, They used to talk in former times, saying, Thus they shall seek guidance at, at Abel. And so they would end disputes. I am among the peaceful and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered and said, Far be it far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not so, but there is a man of the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba the son of Vichri by name. I raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, Watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman in her wisdom went to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba the son of Vichri and threw it out to Joab. Then he blew a trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. So Joab was over all the army of Israel. Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and Peleothites, and Adoram was in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat was the son of Hillel, was recorder. Um, Shiva was scribe. Zadok and Abathar were the priests. And Ira, the Jerite, was chief minister under David. So... Again, that's like a scene you would see in a movie sort of deal. It's, I think this has been copied you know, from the scripture more than once. Um, so that's, again, you know, just it's, it's what happens. And Joab is able to put himself, establish, reestablish himself as Joab, um, you know, as commander through deceit and murder and through valor and wisdom. Take that for what it is. Because that's what it is. 
the, the scripture here, we need to remember on, on many of these things, the scripture gives in these historical books gives us the history of what happened. There are times where there is commentary, like, and the thing that David did displeased the Lord, you know, that making it really clear just so there's no question or whatever. But you also remember, we, before this is written, before these books of history, you have the Torah, you have the first five books of the Law of Moses, which are your God as you read the history to evaluate when people do things, is, is, you know, what they do, is it, is it right or is it wrong? Is it honorable or is it dishonorable? Is it, is it righteous or is it sinful? And so you use that as you read the books of history to discern and, and you know, also through the Holy Spirit, to discern um, for yourself as you, as you read it. You know, so we should be able to look at Joab's, you know, character um, and the things that he does in his life and examine the things that are good and examine the things that are, that are sinful. That shouldn't be difficult, you know, for us. Don't, just don't let anybody use passages like this and say, well, you know, I mean, you see what Joab did, so obviously God condones this, that, and the other thing. That's really weak, and, you know, and we should be able to, to disarm that pretty easily and quickly if the person has any desire for truth, if they're not looking just to argue or unwilling to change anything for the sake of being, you know, the hardness of their heart, right? So, yeah, I just want you to be aware of that as you read, um, as you read the scripture on that. Um, you know, and so, you know, that's a, again, sometimes with Joab, people who deserve to die, die um, in the historical context, again, in the historical context, there's people who des- that deserve to die, die, and there's people who don't deserve to die, die. Um, sometimes he's right and sometimes he's wrong in what he does. But we have a standard. Um, and we have a standard that is given to us in the scripture and is, and is even higher and more clearly given to us by Jesus himself. And so we need to remember that. You can't look in, at anything that Joab does and use that as justification for anything you want to do. Rather, of course, on a much more minor level. We can't even use what Joab does and use it as an excuse to have hatred in our heart for someone. Because Jesus doesn't let us do that. So in all of our lessons, we come back you know, to Jesus and what his expectations are and, and how he wants us you know, to live. Um, and that we are to not be self-seeking. Um, so again, there's a lot in these chapters... Um, to learn and we should really examine um, though it's easy to focus on the negative or the bad things you know we come across some of these characters that sometimes we don't really think very much about like Barzilia and you say you know if you if um, you, you lived a life with his sort of generosity and character that's certainly a noble thing um, and so let's, let's also remember to focus on those characters in the story as well and to remember uh, Shimia's humility. That's just such a big one in this in relation to the gospel 
and how uh, we can give people a guarantee. You know, I wouldn't, I just don't think I could share a message with people, go out and talk to people at the flea market or on the street or at basketball or wherever it is and have conversations with people about uh, this is the best I can give you and it very well might not work out for you. I mean, I just, I mean, how do people do that? But also at the same time, if we know that we know that we know that when people believe in Jesus, they are forgiven, then how do we not? That's the other side of that equation. In some form or fashion, and it doesn't have to look the same for everybody, don't misunderstand the message, don't look the same for everybody, but if we know that we know that we know that Jesus forgives sins, then that has to be a huge priority in our lives to share that message with other people. Like, how could it not? It has to be a huge priority. And that doesn't have anything to do with gifting or methodology. It just has to be there in some form or fashion because we're relational people and we know people who don't know Jesus. So, let's take that to heart and ask God to give us opportunity to share that good news that is true and that is guaranteed and that a person can know that they know that they know that when they die they're going to go be with Jesus. Let's share that. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we thank you for your word and that it is truth. Thank, we're thankful that you forgive those who in humility, believe in your Son. And as we take that bread and that cup tonight, or this morning, we give you thanks, God, and we give you praise, and honor, and glory. Help us, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen.